You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Well, welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, live from the Budgie Smuggler bedroom this week uh, as we uh, continue the podcasting, just to just to give everyone a little something to keep sane in these uncertain times. Uh, obviously, we will be talking a little bit about the pandemic this week, but there's still a lot more going on in the world. Even though everyone's inside, there's a lot going on in the world, and there's also, in these uncertain times, a lot of uncertainty. So to join us today, we have Lucy Zelich, sports journalist and uh, I guess you could say soccer icon, football icon. Sorry, Lucy. Uh, I'm not an icon. I'm definitely not an icon. Oh, well, I got the football bit right. <laughs> Can I just ask before we get this going, what does the budgie smuggler bedroom look like? Well, there's currently uh, two of them going on at the moment because uh, both Errol and I are in quarantine. So so there's two different ones. Usually we're in a budgie smuggler uh, recording studio, uh, but we thought we'd, we'd keep mentioning our sponsors even though they're nowhere in sight. I haven't got the NBN at my place, so uh, I've had to hotspot off uh, the telephone sort of boxes down the road, so I'm out in public. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a risk, but... Yeah. Uh, are there so, any people around? Not up here in Batuta Heights, but, you know, the uh, Today Show and other shows of that ilk have got people scared and worried about this virus. Are you not scared or worried? Uh, well, you know, this isn't my first pandemic, so... You know. <laughs> were you around for the Spanish flu, were you? <laughs> No, I was around for uh, Ebola, SARS, MERS, but, you know, yeah. and of course, you know, I was around for the brief spike in interest that this country had in soccer a few years ago in the World <laughs> Cup, where we won a couple of games in Japan and everyone hopped on the train. Yeah, have, of, you got, have you gotten off the train since? Like any good fan of the Socceroos, you know, I... I only tend to hop on the train every four years, and then it's usually a uh, a short little trip from Redfern into Central. So uh. <laughs> it's a it's a tricky one actually getting behind the Socceroos in times like this when Italian restaurants aren't open at three in the morning. <laughs> oh, well, we're not playing any games. That that's probably the first biggest problem in all of this, isn't it? Now with all the sports shutting down, um, you know, I'm wondering what the big gambling companies are doing. They're probably twiddling their thumbs and very nervous about the uncertainty you referred to before. So there's a lot happening in the world at the moment. I saw on my uh, online gambling account that I have that you're able to bet on the weather now. No. Yep. Yeah, you're able to bet what the maximum temperature will be. Oh, that's <laughs> If it's going to be over or under. I would Lucy, have thought ever- there's some remote kind of camel racing or something going on around the world somewhere, wouldn't there? You know, some, some obscure animal you can, racing honey badgers or something out in the desert. You can gamble on table tennis in Turkey, I think it is. I think that's still going. <laughs> not that we're not that we're encouraging people to gamble, of course, you know. And if you do bet responsibly, no, it's terrible. No, only gamble if you know your horse is going to win. That's what I say. <laughs> so, Lucy, you um, you've been around football, particularly in Australia, but Australian sport, kind of long enough to see this rise of online gambling. Have you noticed anything drastic change in the way we uh, we cover sport, or in fact broadcast sport in this country? Uh, because of the gambling, would you say? Yeah. 
there, there has been a massive influx, but I feel like it's kind of been a part of sport for so long, hasn't it? Um, you know, whenever you're talking about games, and, and this sort of stretches back to even when I was a kid going through high school and college, particularly when I was in year 11 and 12, you know, I used to walk down to the TAB and have a punt with a with a few school buddies every week. <laughs> and it was, yeah, it was just a cheeky 20 bucks, but we kind of, we enjoyed that spectacle aspect of it. And it sort of made watching the games that little bit more fun, um, you know, but there are, I understand, extreme levels of gambling where people are ending up in unfortunate situations and losing losing their homes and their livelihood as, as a result of it. You know, I seem to think it's a bit of fun every now and again. I mean, look, the, the, the 80 million, I mean, I'm still disgusted that I had I didn't win that, that massive jackpot. I mean, what's going on here? What, why why <laughs> am I in a situation where I can't win the lotto? I'm always seeing that it's, you know, oh, I was a healthcare worker up north, somebody here. And I'm not saying the healthcare worker doesn't deserve it, but why can't it be me? So that's the yeah. extent that I'll take my gambling to. But Look, the, the the way that it's changed it is I think that, uh, you know, we're in a situation now where a lot more people are tuning in because of that gambling and betting aspect, you know. It's no longer about the sport and tuning in for the spectacle and the enjoyment element. It's 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 grown to be a much bigger beast. So the way that we cover it, um, you know, for us, we obviously have developed partnerships with, with online and, and just betting companies in general over the years. And, and it's great to have their support in that respect financially. But ultimately for the viewers, uh, you know, the, the, like I said, it's not just about the game anymore. There's so much more to it. You kind of grew up, you've lived it, uh, football particularly your entire life, uh, Croatian family, and in fact, I'm not sure, Canberra you grew up in, did they have the same thing going on in Canberra as they do in other cities around Australia where, in fact, some of the now institutional football clubs were just a, a started off as a Croatian ethnic club? Yeah, so the club that I sort of grew up with was called Croatia Deacon and that was sort of our local football club where both of my brothers got their starts in junior football and and pretty much their rise through football came via these community clubs uh, before they went and kicked on at various National Soccer League clubs elsewhere in, in New South Wales. But they too were also across New South Wales and right around the country, um, ethnic-based clubs. So Sydney Croatia, which has since changed also to Sydney United, uh, you know, and you had Marconi State. You had Sydney Olympic, who were a predominantly Greek club. Um, you know, all of these were, were clubs that were built off the back of these immigrants that had come across to Australia and had already had and developed an affinity with the game and decided to sort of forge their identities and their connection to the country through football, which I think is a, a really beautiful narrative that not a lot of uh, other sports can encompass, you know, uh, and that's the one thing that sort of sets football apart from many of the other codes globally. So um, for, for me, growing up in that environment, was pretty special um, because I got to embrace my own Croatian heritage but learn about the heritage through the sport um, and, and you know, that, that real community aspect, you know, a lot of the, the old codgers getting together and firing up the barbecue and eating chivapi sandwiches and, and having a jibber about football, um, that was really fun for me and that's sort of where I developed my love for the game. So for me to end up in this position in the first place, you know, ultimately I'd always had a love for football but it's an opportunity for me to relive that nostalgia through the game game um, and through my job. So that's sort of what I really very much enjoy. But then we sort of saw this massive shift to move away from that. You know, we wanted to de-ethnicize the clubs. And I understood that position because we wanted to make these clubs available to all Australians. So 
it didn't necessarily feel like, well, if I'm not Croatian, then I can't support this club. And and so so it goes down the chain, whether you're Italian or Greek or Macedonian, whatever. Um, but then what I realised when we did that was that, well, we'd kind of taken away the opportunity for these immigrants to congregate and to find their home again. Um, they've since changed their minds and it was called the National Club Identity Policy. So what they did was they've stripped that now and they've said to clubs, all right, if you want to go back to embracing your heritage and calling it, say, Canberra Croatia or Sydney Croatia, if that's what you want to do, you can do that. But I think, you know, when they when they did it originally, they sucked the soul out of it and it's probably left a lot of fans a bit disenchanted at this point now. So I think maybe the damage has been done. Uh, but look, I, I, it was a great time, a great era growing up in that period because the football was great. I mean, a lot of the, the footballing identities that we developed were, were just fantastic. They were a part of that great golden generation that we've all kind of loved to, to covet and, um, and to reminisce about now, particularly given where we are as a footballing nation. So they were good times, good days, and I, I still miss them, to be honest. Do you remember the first Skippy to play for uh, Croatia Deacon? The first Skippy to play for Croatia Deacon? Nah, that's no. Nah, you're hmm. asking too much of me there. And I don't even know if we had Skippies <laughs> back then. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if we had them. They probably only came, um, you know, in recent years. So, yeah, that's that's going too far back in the in the encyclopedia for me. Anyway, Earl, I'll just interrupt things now for a special message from one of our partners. Life is pretty tough right now for a lot of people, and this can really impact our mental health. Yes, it really can, Clancy. And even if you're stuck at home, it's still so important to stay connected. In fact, it's more important now than ever, really. Too right. If you have a mental health issue, the SANE forums are a place where you can talk online to people who get it. They know what you're going through because they've been there too. The community on the forums discuss all sorts of experiences. So you're sure to find someone like you who can help you feel less alone. Yeah, true that. The forums are completely free and they're anonymous. And mental health professionals are always there in the background 24-7. So you'll always feel safe and supported while you're on there. Sign up right now and chat to others at sane.org slash forums. Because physical distancing doesn't have to mean social distancing. That's right, Clancy. And that's sane.org forward slash forums. They care because they've been there. Now back to the show. You you also are a Liverpool fan. Can you just explain to our listeners? I mean, we've got a, a big kind of listenership in, in across Queensland, and of course, you know, same thing happened there, but probably not as visible. How do you explain to someone who doesn't follow football the following of clubs in the EPL? I mean, people do do it a lot more yeah, now. You hear, like you hear people say, how, "I'm a Lakers fan." Yeah, like how can you go for a team in the EPL? Like, say, for example, if I went. For Man U, I've never been to Manchester, but, you know, there are people out there who follow these teams with such, you know, panache. How would you describe that to someone who doesn't follow football? How does that type of manifest itself? How does this happen? You know, it's a really interesting concept because now just listening to it, it actually sounds really stupid. It's like, why are you supporting this club when you've never been there before? Like, it's it's really, it's such a foreign concept to so many people on the outside of the bubble that, you know, when you articulate it in that way, it does sound ridiculous. But, you know, for those of us on the inside, it doesn't. Like, I've never, I'm a Liverpool fan and I've actually never been to Liverpool. I've never seen them live, which is a, a great disgrace for me. Um, but I'll get there. I promise you I will. Um, but the thing is, right, so the way that I came to support Liverpool was because obviously growing up in a football family, uh, my brother, who's closest in age to me, Ivan, 
Um, he was going to football training one day, and I was like his guide dog. And by that, I mean I followed this poor bastard everywhere. <laughs> not freaking shake me. Um, but I, I loved him so much. He was my best friend growing up, and we're still very close to this day. But, uh, you know, and I remember as he was heading out the door, he had this Liverpool kit bag with him. It was his training bag. And I said, what's that bag? I was six years old, mind you. I said, what's that bag? And he said, this is the first and only football club that you will support for the rest of your life, and don't you forget it, right? And that stuck with me. It's so crazy because I still remember that day um and and that's just sort of how i fell into it and it's the story it's a story that's not entirely uncommon across you know the football community because for so many of them you just end up supporting the club that your family supports right um or that your friends support who, whoever that may be so you know for for a lot of you queenslanders i'm sure you know what you know why do you support a particular club in in rugby league or wherever it is you know it's because well that's your hometown club or or that's the club that your father said you know you're going to support so for me, that's that's how my love affair with Liverpool started. And you're right that you know the, the support that goes into it is vociferous and almost ferocious at times. You know, um, when you look at derby games that are played, the fans just get right into it. But we're talking about you know centuries, a century over a century of history here. So the fans are very rightfully so passionate about their club. But then this is what they ultimately live for. Because for us, you know, football takes on, as I said before, with reference to gambling. But with the support, um, it. it it, it takes on a completely different form um, when the game starts. You know, this is something that's free from any any concerns about, say, pandemics. You know, when the games were still playing a, a couple of weeks ago, that was an opportunity for us to to sort of forget what's going on in the rest of the world, whether it's political, whether it's health-related, um, you know, whether it's race-related, religious, you know, all that sort of falls away. Um, and and that, 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 for me, is the beauty of football, is that it's an escape for a lot of people. I think you're going to be greatly underwhelmed when you finally get to Liverpool. You reckon? I've heard the rumour is you actually probably shouldn't walk alone in Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good call. I like that. It's very clever. Oh, look, I'm looking forward to going to the stadium. You know, um, my other half, he's been there um, and he said it's just, it's something really special about it. So I'm looking forward to that day, but I've just got to... I've got to bloody win the lotto. Like I said before, yeah. why can't it be me? I've got to win the lotto and bugger off and take a football sabbatical, which I'm looking forward to at some point. Now, you um, in the in that golden age you talk about earlier, you got to spend a bit of time with Les Murray. Yes, I did. He was, and he and he was one of the household names before household names existed in football in Australia. Yeah. What, what, can you tell us what you kind of learnt from from Les? Was there any any standout kind of uh, uh, tips in that? Was it was it was it a mentorship type uh, scenario? It was, but by accident, you know, it was one of those things where whoever worked with Les, you inevitably felt like you were being mentored because of how... Uh, just how, and I don't even know how to do this man justice when I talk about him, just how magnetic his personality was and the depth of his knowledge and how wise he was. I mean, he'd been around the game for so long that whenever you were in his company, there was always something to learn. So, you know, for me to call him a mentor, I I mean, it's it's 100% accurate, but I think a lot of people that worked closely with him could say the exact same thing because you just develop that relationship with him so easily and you always look to him for advice. And that was sort of one of the things when I first started there I mean having grown up as a kid and seeing him on the telly and you know my dad saying to me as a young kid to shut up because you know Les is on TV uh, you know you're like knew him so to walk into the halls of SBS and to actually meet the guy and sit and be in his company um 
you know, that was such a surreal experience for me and, and it still is to this day because of what he meant to so many Australians and not just those who were embedded within the football community. I mean, I distinctly remember actually I, at this period of my life I was a pretty heavy smoker. I no longer smoke now, but um, I'd gone upstairs to the SBS cafe and I was sitting down and I, and I actually, no, I just walked in and I saw Les sitting in the corner, you know, that was his spot and he was, you know, reading the paper having a cigarette and a coffee and I sat down a few tables down because I didn't want to bother him and I was this young 26 year old kid from Canberra I was a shit kicker really let's be honest um you know <laughs> as if I deserved to be in the presence of Les Murray uh and I sat down and he looked up and he noticed me and he said Luce come over and sit with me you know he summoned me over and I sat down with him and you know I pulled out my cigarettes and I thought all right I'm gonna light up a cigarette and I remember at that moment texting my brother and saying, you would not believe it, I'm sitting here having sharing a cigarette and chatting to Les Murray at the SBS Cafe. I think I've finally made it. Um, and that was such a, such a special moment for me because, again, you know, I, I realised the magnitude of what being in this man's company meant. Uh, and, you know, for the things that I learned from him, to, to really answer your question, um, I learned to respect other cultures. I learned that, you know, we're not just covering the game it's, and, and that the game certainly isn't about us. You know, I think it's so easy when you end up in television to get caught up in that sort of whole lifestyle and think that it's about you. It's actually not about you. And particularly when it comes to being a host, you're the conduit. You're, you know, you're there to be the voice of the panelist to order the conversation about and to basically listen to your producer when it's time to move on and throw to a fucking commercial break. Um, mm. But ultimately, um, you know, Les taught us that, you know, we're about, we're not here to entertain, that it's about the game. That's where the entertainment comes from. So, uh, and, and like I said, and respecting other cultures and, and, and basically sharing the narratives around football with the viewers and, you know, and, and doing doing these cultures justice, which is where the whole pronunciation thing comes into it, you know. Um, Les was very big on that and had always practised that, being a Hungarian immigrant. He obviously understood what it was like to escape a country that was being ravaged by war-torn uh, governments and and to to move to a better life, which is what Australia provided for him. But he also understood mm -hmm. that you know, the game is so multicultural, and one of the things at SBS that we really pride ourselves on is respecting those cultures and paying homage to them. So that's that. Th those are just some of the key things that I learnt from Les. Lucy, could we go back to how you got your start? You know, right back at the beginning, uh, your start in journalism, which is a question that we like to ask uh, most of the journalists who come on this show. So you started right back on Canberra Radio. Yeah, so it was interesting because for me, I'd kind of cruised through life having job ADD, if that makes sense. Like one week I was yeah. like, okay, I'm going to be a lawyer. The next week I was like, okay, I'm going to be a photographer. Then I went through this really wanky phase where I was like, okay, I'm going to become an air hostess. And then I went through this, you know, this really interesting phase where when I was in college, um, I loved acting, um, loved drama class, you know, had done a few courses through NIDA and really enjoyed that and thought that that was sort of where I'd, where I'd end up. Um, you know, career-wise, but then it never, if this makes sense, it never sort of felt like home. It didn't really stick. You know, it was there. The passion was there and the interest was there, but it wasn't something that I thought, okay, this is something I really want to pursue. So I, I just sort of decided when I finished college to take a break because nothing ever felt like it was really kind of sticking. I thought, well, all right, I'll go and, you know, do the obligatory thing. I had jobs in retail, kind of bandied about, tooled around in the public service. And then it sort of dawned yeah. on me when I was 
about uh, probably when I was about twenty. The year I was due to turn yeah, the year I was due to turn twenty one. I thought, well, kind of, what am I doing? You know, I, I love football, I love to write, but I'd never really thought about combining the two. And then I sort of felt this inherent pressure to decide, okay, who do I want to be? Who am I going to be in this world? Because I feel like it, you know, whenever you leave college, um, that that pressure is put on you so intensely that you have to know who you are right then and there, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. You know, I'm the mother of a of, of a, an eleven month old now. And I think when she gets to that age, I'm not going to say to her, you have to know who you are. I'm going to say, go and discover who you are. You know, go and travel, um, wank about, you know, see what it was, see what takes your fancy, unless you really know what it is you want to do. So then I decided, okay, all right, I'm going to have a crack at this. I'm going to enroll um, at the University of Canberra into a, a, an undergraduate degree, a Bachelor of Journalism, and I'm going to try and major in sport business. I didn't want to just go straight into sports journalism because I thought, well, who knows, I might come out the other side of it and realize that I might want to cover fashion or politics or something. I wanted to keep it pretty broad and open. And then I had to get in, obviously, via a mature age entry. It's pretty hilarious when you consider that at 20 years of age, you're you're considered mature age. Um, But I got into uni um, and then I started going through the course and I decided, you know what, um, I'll be happy if I can just write like match reports in my local chronicle in Canberra. I'll be delighted with that. But as the course progressed, um, I realized that I I was no good at writing like typical news stuff. You know, news is very hard, cold, um, black and white, who, what, when, where, why. Whereas I was more creative, you know, I I wanted to to tell more feature stories and to sort of fluff about a bit more. Um, And then I realized, right, maybe this actually isn't for me. But then the radio component of the degree rolled around and I thought, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this. I've got no interest in radio. But I actually really liked it. As the degree went on, I started hearing at our local community radio station, 2XX, um, and then just fell into it there. Um, I'd put a call out and I'd heard from an old friend at school that they were looking for football radio presenters and she said, oh, this might be up your alley. Just have a go and see what you think. So I volunteered and it was just me and 14 other dudes. Um, And then I probably (laughs) got a bike because I was the only chick. Um, But, you know, it kind of progressed from there. So it went from doing these podcasts to being asked to then come and guest uh, star on a show called Balls and All, which I'm not entirely certain even runs anymore. I hope it does because it's a great program. You know, they spoke about a whole range of sports and I went in there and just gibbered about football. But then I started doing commentary on the women's uh, football, on the W League as a co-commentator. You know, the thing that I I really love to stress to everybody is that it's not like, oh, I just got the gig because of my last name or because I was a woman or because I had this passion for sport. There are are a shit ton of setbacks. You know, Mm -hmm. I got told uh, no multiple times um, and and even walked away from the whole concept of it entirely because, you know, in my final year of university, I'd gotten um, a shortlist for the Peter Leonard Scholarship at WinTV, uh, which is now defunct in Canberra. But then it was me and two other guys and, you know, I ended up losing out on that. And then I went for a job interview at ABC and, oh, my God, I tanked like I was de- I was terrible I was <laughs> embarrassing I'm sure the guys at ABC are looking at me now going how the hell did this chick get a job like do you remember that job interview when she came in and she was dreadful um but like, like the, the, I think this is actually a rite of passage. You have to go through the struggles. You have to be told no. Um, and you even maybe have to turn your back on it, which is what I ultimately ended up doing. And then sort of Football Federation Australia, this was my olive branch back into the fray. Football Federation Australia reached out after I'd been out of the game for a year and stopped doing podcasts and everything. And, and it said, you know, kind of where have you been? And we're looking for a team to put together a podcast and, and produce it for us here at FFA. Would you be interested? And so myself and my 
my other panelists, uh, Paddy Bordier and uh, Nick Cumston, top dudes. Um, you know, and we were working in a community radio station where you know we'd sometimes forget to hit record, or the knobs would be falling off <laughs> the panel in the studio. Like they, they, they were all good times. And then you know I'd come home after my job in the public service and edit it until like 10, 11 o'clock at night. So you know I really look back fondly on those days. But the Olive Branch came via FFA, and then from there, obviously after doing that for a season, um, SBS, I got an email from the then executive producer, Noel Brady. Uh, and he said, look, um, you know, we've seen the work that you're doing with the Football Federation Australia podcast. We've just acquired the rights uh, for four years to the A-League and we'd love you to come in and screen test. So that's pretty much in a nutshell how it went. They strung me along for months, though, those bastards, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah, come up and have a screen test. And then I'd go away and I'd hear nothing from them for ages. And I was like, what is going on? This is the worst Tinder date of my life. Yeah. <laughs> what were you doing for work on the side there? At that time, I was working in the public service as an executive yeah. assistant to the head of HR at the Attorney General's Department. Um, great boss. I actually saw her a couple of weeks ago. It's a very Canberra job, though. Yeah, very, very, very Canberra job. <laughs> you're either in retail or you're in building and landscaping or you're a public servant. That's pretty much the extent of it down in Canberra. But no judgment, no judgment. It, look, it provided a, a cushy environment for me. You know, the pay is good. The people were great too, you know, fantastic people. But ultimately, it was never going to be my forever. Now, we, we started this uh, podcast and we, we actually uh, blindsided you with a list of rather tricky Queensland names. Well, after this is all said and done and, and everyone's outside of isolation, we'll catch up and we'll give you these 20 names to see if you can rattle them off in, in a minute. Uh, yeah. but the, thing, the thing about us Queenslanders is there's a kind of carelessness to a lot of the way we pronounce names. I mean, for example, Bob Catter, his real name is Robert Qatar, um, Lebanese origin. Anastasia Palisade is a bit the same. I don't think that the, the way that we even she pronounces it isn't the way that uh, her her Polish uh, grandparents would have pronounced it. And that's one of the things that you've actually uh, been able to bring, uh, similar to Les Murray, to uh, the world game is some uh, accurate uh, pronunciations. Uh, what do you think that is about Australians, where they just say this will do? You know what? I I don't resent Australians for that either because I'm the same. You know, it's one of those things where we love to, to shorten a name. We love to give people nicknames. Like I actually find that a pretty endearing aspect um, and, a, and a quirky charm of ours. I don't mind it. I think where I minded it was when people took issue with the fact that I did make an effort to pronounce them correctly. And that was all such a, a bizarre time for me, you know, when I think back to that. And I was asked so many times during interviews over the last sort of two years coming up to two is not in, gee, in a few months, um, which is crazy to think. But, you know, <laughs> what did you think of it all and how was that and, you know, w what was your impression of it? I kind of – it's it's strange because although it was happening um, – it was about me, it didn't feel like it was happening to me because I totally avoided the situation. I was like, no, nah, I'm going to go to this tournament. I'm not going to make it about, you know, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook notifications. I don't want to know what the public are thinking about my presentation style. I'd love to know what they're thinking about the football but you can't pick and choose the debates that you have with people online which is you know the, the tricky part but you know I'd learned some serious and hard lessons from the 2014 tournament where I'd become pretty consumed by the comments and the feedback that I've got that I'd gotten which was pretty nasty you know and I guess a lot of people say it's a part of the job but my view is why does it have to be you know why are we 
allowed to kind of, you know, abuse each other and, and call each other a series of nasty things online. But in, in the real world, you know, you'd probably be arrested if you were to abuse someone in that way or threaten death or rape or whatever else, which is some of the things that I've had to deal with over the, the course of my almost seven-year career. But the whole Russia pronunciation gate situation was, was really odd because, like I said, I turned off all my notifications. So when I did start getting messages from family and friends saying, you know, keep your head up, just ignore all the criticism and don't worry about it, I was like, what the what the f is going on? So you know, I'd gotten a call from my publicist, um, and I said, you know, what's happening back there, Lou? And she was like, look, people have taken issue with the way that you're pronouncing names. I said, what do you mean though? Like this isn't the first time I've been doing this. I've been doing this for years. Like what's the problem? What the hell is the problem? And she was like, look, you know, they've got an issue with the way that you're pronouncing them. And she goes, I don't know what to say. You're pronouncing them correctly. So I, I don't know what more I can add to this conversation. I said, look, I've heard it. I don't need to hear about it again. Um, I'm happy to sort of talk about it very loosely if people ask me, but I, I don't want this to be the headline. I don't want this to be to the talking point. I just want to talk about the damn football. You know, we're at a World Cup. The, you know, what I'm doing shouldn't be the discussion point. So it was all really very strange for me. But, you know, now when I look at it, I think, well, look, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I mean, and this is the point about TV. I've watched television and thought, oh, gee, I don't really like that presenter or whatever. But would it compel me to take to their social media account and be like, you're this, you're that? No, I can't be bothered. And who's got time for that? But a lot of people do, which, again, like I said, everyone's entitled to their view. But I think we just need to start being better about how we interact with one another online. It's gotten pretty nasty and and really ugly. Um, That's my only real takeaway from that and it's why I've sort of moved to start a national conversation around you know people being accountable for their actions online because I think it's really important yeah do you, do you think also with that there might have, you might have been um almost viewed as a as a pressure valve for a very frustrating uh world cup in which uh Optus Sport decided they might be the broadcasters Oh, you know, I felt for Optus at that time. You, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> start that first and foremost. Don't you? you know, I felt so sorry for them. And, um, and look, we were in a scenario where we had to put ourselves under extreme pressure to deliver the content that we did, um, given the, the the operating constraints that we were already in. I mean, we came into that World Cup thinking, right? We've get we've got match of the day. It's one game a day. It's a Twitter show and it's a highlights program. That changed from it's a highlights program to a Twitter show plus three games a day. Um, that's unprecedented in broadcasting history. So, you know, to go through the rigors of that and be working 18-hour days and then, you know, finishing up at the, the broadcast compound and then doing interviews with people back home and, you know, doing podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Like, by the end of it, I came back seriously underweight. So did Foles. Like, we were struggling. We barely had time to eat. I suppose Optus have more excuses than uh, the MyGov website over the last week. <laughs> that MyGov website, poor people, man. Seriously, like that's—if you've got a punching bag at home, just just wrap it up in a MyGov towel or something like that and have a go, eh? Yeah. <laughs> we are going to—I personally view you as quite an expert in in a lot of things. There is one name I want to run past you. It's Croatian background that I'd I'd like to get the. Um, Correct, correct pronunciation. You might you might be familiar with this name. Uh, first name K A R L. Middle name. <laughs> m- yes. Mi- middle name S V I L E N K O. Last name S T E F A N O V I C. How would you say that name? Yeah. Well, you'd say I know who you're talking about. It's the great Karl Stefanovic. So Stefan. Stefanovic would be the correct pronunciation. But look, there's this thing, you know, even my parents, right? So my mum and dad, my mum's name, correct birth name is Zorica. 
But in order for it to be easier for Australians and the people that she worked with when she first arrived here, she turned it into Zora. And same thing for my dad. You know, his name in Croatian is Frane, but he changed it to Frank just to make it easier for everybody. And that was sort of their way of becoming more Australian-like than Mm. anything. You know, it's funny when I talk to my parents now and I say to them, what's home for you? Is it Croatia or is it Australia? They say Australia, you know, um, because for them it's like this country has given them um, an inordinate amount of opportunity you know, my dad's a builder. He's since retired, but has created such a fantastic life for um, you know himself, my mum, and our family because of the, the the opportunities that this country provided. So you know, they still love to go back to Croatia. My dad less so because his mother's passed away, um, and he doesn't feel that much of a pull. Albeit he's still got you know brothers and sisters over there, but you know, for them here is home, and it always will be. And and I think that's you'll see sense amongst a lot of immigrants in this country. Um, it's not just restricted to Croats. Uh, you know, they all came here with the view that Australia could provide for them and it has in spades. So that's where I think, you know, sometimes when we can be inherently racist of other cultures coming here, we need to remember that they love this country, you know, just as much as the next Aussie. Um, so it's it's really important to recognise that and, and embrace the multicultural aspects because we've loved taking things from other cultural mm. nations, you know. Um, you know, when you go down down the street after you've been out on a bender all night and you want a kebab, guess who we've got to thank for those? The beautiful people of Lebanon. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that, you know, we, we should be realising are assets to this country and not hindrances. More of a, more of a Turkish kebab man myself, but uh, uh, with the, <laughs> what, what's that? Uh, what's that Croatian uh, uh, cabbage? Yeah, with kupus, we call it kupus. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We've got cabbage rolls as well that are like um, rice mixed with meat, and that's called sarma. That stuff will stink your house out for days. I mean, stay away from that. I always knew when my mum was cooking sarma when I was walking home from the bus stop. I was like, oh, here we go again. She's got a stinky cabbage. <laughs> it's a forbidden treat, really. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. forbidden treat. The uh, interesting thing Osher Gunsberg said to us on our uh, interview with him was when his old man, Czechoslovakian background, uh, when they go back to the homeland, uh, his dad actually has an accent that people kind of sit around and listen to because it sounds like he's on old-time radio. His accent's still stuck in, like, 1950s Czechoslovakia. He hasn't kind of kept up with the... Uh, Dialogue. How, how do you go uh, around the other Croats? Do, do they can they tell you're from Australia when you're speaking fluently? Yeah, they can. And the, the same thing has happened to my mum and dad, who still have very thick accents um, here in Australia. But you're gonna, you know, I've got to remind myself that they've been here for just under 50 years. So when we go back to Croatia, even though I still speak fluent Croatian, it was my first language, they can straight away pick up the fact that I'm not from there, um, which is sometimes insulting. It's like, what? What do you mean? How do you know? Um, but the, you do. <laughs> this kind of twang um, in your dialect and, and they can sniff it out like bloodhounds. So, yeah, it's pretty funny. And like I said, even even the fact that it's happening to my parents um, suggests to me that, yeah, well, we've become Australian through and through. It doesn't matter which language we're speaking. Now, you're doing a, uh, a much better job than, than some of the NRL commentators anyway with your pronunciation. I know that the, I was actually very impressed uh, to see the NRL. Ray Warren uh, managed to nail Trebojevic. Um, that was uh, that's an impressive start. He's probably still yeah. saying it wrong though. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure if uh, if a European name is harder for you know an Anglo person to say as opposed to a name from the islands. Yeah. <laughs> because, because because they do seem to have a lot of trouble with both. 
<laughs> yeah, it's an interesting question. Look, no judgment. I mean, you're not expecting everyone to become an expert overnight. I mean, it helps that, you know, like I said, I've, I've got a different language as a first language and that always helps. Um, and that a lot of the European names that I'm pronouncing are, are quite similar in sound to my language. So, yeah. you, you know, I think that when it comes to this sort of thing, the, the one thing I've always stressed to people is just try, just give it a crack. And I think that that's what people appreciate. You know, I've had people butcher my last name for years so that when people do say it correctly, it is nice because it, it, you know that that's how your name is supposed to be pronounced, and that's sort of where my efforts went into it. Um, and and they always will and and always have is that I'm I'm pronouncing it for them. I'm not pronouncing it for Joe Blow down the street because to them it doesn't matter, but to certain people in certain cultures and communities it does. So one of the nice kind of outcomes out of all that kind of hoopla from the World Cup in 2018 was that I had a lot of people from a variety of different communities writing to me to say thank you. Um, we really appreciate the fact that you are making an effort to pronounce our names correctly because it means a lot to us. So I, I took a lot of comfort from that, but at the same time, you know, it, it did start a national conversation around, well, you know, do we care enough about how we're pronouncing people's names and is that something that we should care about? Well, you know, that that's up for debate, right? Because other people will say, well, you know, you're here in Australia, so just accept that, you know, you're gonna, your name's going to be pronounced the way that it's going to be pronounced. But at the same time, I kind of think, well, what is Australia? What does a modern-day mm. Australia look like? And to me, it represents a vast array of different cultures, um, which we, like I said before, should be embracing. Now, from one, from one soccer outrage to another, Lucy, perhaps you're this one we're talking about here uh, with – pronunciations was completely unwarranted we, we definitely agree to that but right now the there is an actual real outrage happening in that uh, Liverpool look like they're going to win the competition for the first time in I don't know a thousand years and now this this these uncertain times we're in have just almost uh, snatched it from the the grasp of like the jaws of victory what's going on here what what is, this is unprecedented. What what are the feeling from from you know someone uh, like yourself who's well and truly in the Liverpool camp? Oh, it just had to happen to us, didn't it? You know, it's back to that season when Gerard slipped and we were close to winning the season again. You know, it reminds me of that, not the last Champions League final, but the year before that when Cardio Southkeeper absolutely butchered it and cost us a, a trophy. Like, the, it just seems to be a Liverpool fan's curse in that you're always going to come close, but you're never going to quite get there. Um, I'm in two minds about it. I've already kind of discussed this with a few fellow Liverpool fans. My other half is a massive Liverpool fan. I said, you know, this whole concept of, I'll just cancel the season. That doesn't sit well with me because then again, we're being robbed of an opportunity to win the title. But then on the other side of the coin, it's like, well, then just give it to Liverpool. That doesn't sit well with me either too because I'd like us to be able to do it in the correct fashion. Um, and that's me being politically correct about it and honest too. So I think that there is this view that the, 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 the actual Premier League will resume. They're very hell-bent on getting it up and running again. Um because we're not just talking about a small league here. We're talking about a competition that has, you know, billions involved um, and the eyes of the, the footballing world are right on it at this time. So, you know, when you're dealing with those kind of economic pressures as well as the government pressure too, I mean, when you consider that in 2016-17, the tax revenue that they generated was in the billions, I think it was about 3.3 billion range, uh, you know, they're going to want to see it come back too. But then you've got this whole issue of, well, are they going to play it behind closed doors? 
laws. You know, that's also a concern too because a lot of these clubs are going to suffer and they are suffering right now. I mean, when we look at what's going on domestically here in the A-League, I'm hearing reports that some clubs are going to still be able to pay players, others may not. Some are going to have to take pay cuts. Uh, you know, it's a really concerning time for the global footballing and, and global sporting economy in general. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think it's rough. I, I don't know what you do. I, I don't envy the position of the uh, the English FA in this scenario because, you know, what do you do? What what do you do? Is it the right thing to give it to them? Is it the right thing not to? But then you ask the subsequent question of, well, what happens to those clubs down at the very bottom who are on the cusp of relegation? What happens to yeah. the team in the championship that could also... Or does, like, um, the ban uh, that, that that happened uh, to Manchester... The, the blue team from Manchester, Manchester City. Um, yeah. So, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, like... Um, He's learning. I guess they would be exhaling just quietly after they got the boot for a couple of seasons. Well, see, that hasn't entirely been wrapped either because they're pursuing it through the Court of Arbitration for Sports. So I think with everything that's yeah. sort of happened now, that's all taken a back seat because obviously the health and safety and well-being of, of not just football players and their fans but the, the world and its entire community are, are at the forefront of their minds. But they're going to have to have these conversations again. When they get picked up, I don't know. Um, Foz and I had a, a chat with a, a university professor who also works at Westmead Hospital the other day and we said, well, look, when's a realistic expectation um, to to kind of predict that sport could resume again and he said look it's a really good question because we don't know you know this is such a rapidly changing and evolving pandemic that you know one day you go from oh we've just got a few cases to holy shit the country's in lockdown and there are bodies lining up and we don't have a hospital system that's capable of, of looking after them a la Italy so you know, they're really worrying times so there are a lot of questions but I'm afraid that there just aren't any answers I mean you consider what's going on in NRL as well I mean that's gut wrenching you know you've got the livelihood yeah. of so many people at stake here you know a friend of mine just got stood down from her job and then that's rough you know um this is real life this is what's happening so it's a it's a concerning point absolutely but gee am i thinking about the title now not so much do you think the uh, a league in australia might be a bit better at balancing their books in the nrl you reckon they might have um thought uh, against spending their entire war chest on fireworks <laughs> you know what? I didn't realise actually that NRL were in that deeper shit. Are they? <laughs> oh, they're in some. Yeah, current. they are in. That they are in the deepest. They're even worse than rugby union. I mean, they are in really? the they're deepest worse? possible sporting shit that you can be in. Well, yeah, like it was run week to week. Like that was like the cash had come in, the cash had come out. It was <laughs> like we're about to see the true horror that rugby league. Yeah. was wow. it turns out I didn't realize it, it was that bad I thought they were in a much better position than what we are in in football in 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 the a-league that's for certain I didn't realize they were up shit Creek that much no it no, turns out Lucy there's, uh, there's not too many accountants who are in the rugby league competition where I'd say there would be a fair few in soccer because wow. yeah because if you look at it from the outside it looks like every team in the a-league was run to quite a professional standard compared to rugby league where it's just like 
just take the money out of, out of the pokies and pay the players. Just just make it go away. <laughs> See, that's not. I mean, it's it's interesting because that's not entirely true either. I mean, I think that there is this big facade that when you look at a professional sporting competition, you hear the word professional. You know, it's the the you know the elite competition in your country. Um, there's this assumption that everything is is good and that you know the players are being given all the support that they need. <laughs> yeah. That's so not true. You know, that is so not true. I mean, we've got clubs in the A League like the Central Coast Mariners, for example, where they don't even have a proper gym for their players. Like they're, they're calling themselves the centre of excellence, the, the facilities that they're running out of. But realistically, it's just a patch of land that the owner has secured in order to sell out office spaces uh, and rent things out to other businesses. It's not necessarily being devoted to the players and the coaches and the staff there, which is a crying shame. So there are a lot of clubs that will really suffer through this period. Like I said, um, you know, the, the report and the rumours that are coming out saying that they won't be able to pay players players it's not entirely shocking to us because a lot of clubs are still kind of operating in the red here as well there are only a handful perhaps maybe two out of the entire competition that 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 will break even or make a small margin of profit but everyone's been struggling for a long time i mean this is a competition that's been in in a real state of flux for a number of years now and a lot of that's down to the neglect from the governing body from the powers that be and the regime that we've had in previous years that just haven't understood that the importance of this game and the professional game and why it needs to be nurtured so much because it affects the the grassroots you know we've got the the highest participation rate at the junior level rests in football in soccer and what are they doing to capitalize on it so you know you might think that rugby league's in trouble but gee we've we've got our work cut out for us uh, in in football that's for damn sure I do think the difference is that, uh, as you pointed out, the, uh, the the institutions that exist in football, uh, soccer football in Australia, are run by passionate, passionate outsiders. Uh, some of them, you know, I guess like your your own family. Whereas um, the NRL are rapidly learning that it turns out ex-footballers don't make very good accountants, particularly when they haven't ever studied as them. Hey, hey, hey! We have David. Gallup. We have, we have David Gallup as our as our CEO as well. So you guys yeah. would know what that feels like in rugby league. I mean, it's no slight on David; he's a wonderful guy. But you know, the thing for us in football was that we were crying out for passionate people. You know, people that understood the game, that that felt, I guess, a sense of duty to it to be running our sport. And now we've gotten a, a CEO in the in the form of James Johnson, who is you know an ex football player, who is someone that has had. Um, um, experience at the industry. So, you know, we're hoping that with those two kind of um, skill sets behind him, he's able to bring something tangible to the table. And so far, so good. But he's only been in the job for 10 weeks. And look at what he's come into. The league is suffering and struggling. And now he's in the grips of this global pandemic, which has forced the competition into shutdown and has also seen them just announced this morning that, uh, that they've had to lay off 70% of their staff. Like, that's huge. That is huge as an organization. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's, there is a, a shit ton of work to be done, that's for sure. Well, there's certainly some uncertain times ahead for everyone, uh, both at home, at the workplace, and on the TV screens and in the stadiums. Uh, Lucy Zelich, thank you for joining us today. We, um, it, it's been so refreshing to sit down and talk to someone for you know this long about something not strictly related to uh, the coronavirus pandemic. So True, so true. Very refreshing, and, um, and all the best. I reckon we'll be all right for uh, 2021 will be the next time we sit down and get some real sport in the Tokyo Olympics. Um, but other than that, I think we'll all be um, we'll all be all right come, uh, what is it, Qatar? Qatar 2022. That is the yeah. next World Cup. That's what we're yeah. shooting for. Yep. 
Yeah, well, let's just lock it down. I hope the Emiratis and, uh, and, and the Gulf states can lock it down and uh, keep that virus out. We'll just make sure our athletes are nice and clean. They're not pissing hot. And, uh, yeah, let's play, let's play some soccer. <laughs> Guys, I really appreciate it. Massive right. fan. I'm a massive, massive fan of the Batuta Advocate. I love the stuff that you do, the headlines that you come up with, and some that have actually concerned myself over the uh, the, the, the last few months. Um, no, I'm a big fan. I love the work that you do. Keep it up. You're adding some real light and enjoyment to the uh, the conversation in the light of such um, you know grim times that we're facing at the moment. Yeah, well, we might have a little bit of a run Thank on, uh, on, Thanks, on the soccer football, Lucy. We'll, uh, a few more yeah. articles like that to come. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much.